back progressively because he wanted to see how far Whitfield's voice would carry. And so he walked until he could not hear Whitfield's voice anymore, which knowing Franklin's theology, he probably didn't want to hear what Whitfield had to say. Anyways, but that's an aside. A quarter of a mile. So maybe, I don't know, if God did supernatural stuff or those guys were just rose to the occasion. So, But here we are this morning with Mike's, and Dr. Jim Knight's going to pray for us. Dear Lord, thank you for this time that we can be together, and we just pray uh, for your blessings on this group that we may understand the Word of God better from our fine teachers. Lord, please be with the leaders of the world and the country during this tumultuous time, and we just pray for your blessings in our lives. Amen. Amen. All right, my friends, we've got a lot to do today, and this is probably one of the most challenging uh, sections in the New Testament regarding the uh, cosmic figure of Melchizedek, okay? Uh, a bewildering personage uh, to many. So um, <clears throat> here's what we're going to do today. Uh, chronological facts. Uh, I'm going to lay down the thesis that one of the reasons that people don't understand the author of Hebrews, which Zev and I think is Apollos, but it's not necessary to believe that, but one of the points that he makes is about Melchizedek is completely under, not able to be understood unless you understand the chronology, because the chronology of where Melchizedek and Abraham and Moses and David all fit together is essential to understand his theological point that he makes, which Zev is going to unpack. So my job today, I'm going to lay out the chronological facts of Abraham, Melchizedek, David, and Moses. And once you have that firmly in your mind, then Zev will explain the spiritual meaning of Melchizedek, or to use the classic historiographic terms, chronos and kairos. Chronos is just what? Strict stone-cold facts, which is why we all hated history. And if they had taught history correct and snuck the kairos in there, what does it mean? What does this event mean? How does it change history? These are world-changing, epic-changing, paradigm-shifting events that take place that then make history make sense for us. So Zeb's going to do that, and then any questions that you might have, we would love to hear them. Okay, ready to fly? Now, there's some handouts on your uh, table, and uh, I put these together. By the way, if anybody's a chronology freak, for $99.99, you could, no, you, you could write to me, and I will send you uh, about a 100-page document via email uh, that chronologizes the entire Bible in detail. Like, I spent seven years on this. I'm not saying it's perfect, but if you spend seven years on something, it should be perfect, right? <laughs> but if you really want to get into this, I'll send it to you. But this is a page from it. This page right here that lays out the chronology, you can uh, follow along, and then the second page uh, on the back side is an even more detailed chart that shows you the exact chronology of the Exodus. Now, to be academically fair, how many of you saw the movie Exodus? Huh. Do you remember the date they put on there right at the beginning when they started the show, uh, started the storyline when, uh, when the story was being told? Does anyone remember the date they put on there? 1300 BCE. That's fine. That's really the ma majority viewpoint among scholars. However, I prefer to follow the reading of the Bible on this point. 1 Kings 6, verse 1 says that in the 480th year of the Exodus, Solomon built his temple. The 480th year. 
Well, we know from Egyptian chronologies and comparing Egyptian chronologies and the kings of Israel that we can really locate that date for sure. Now, now we're, we're close. 966 B.C. E. is when Solomon finished the temple. So you add 480 to that and you get what? I know it's Sunday morning, but 1445. So I think the Exodus took place in 1445 and ended in 1440 when they entered, entered Cana. That's okay. Even if that's wrong, the argument and the structure of this whole thing that you're going to learn today still holds because if you choose 1300 or 1400, it doesn't really matter. Now to the point, when was Abraham born? And I know one person in this room knows this. 2165 B.C. slash E. Before Christ, before the common era. Now, uh, when did he die? 1990. So he was 175 years when he died. So Genesis 14 is the first mention of Melchizedek in the Bible, and I want you to turn there now. And somewhere between those two dates, I think about the year 2080 B.C. Okay? About 2080 B.C., Abraham has this encounter with this figure, this personage named Melchizedek. Kindly pay attention to the text carefully, and you will see something interesting. 1417, Genesis, is describing Abraham after he's re returned from the defeat of Cladora Leomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And here's the point. King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, El Elyon, which Zev will wax on about. He blessed him. Who's the blessed? Who's the one gets blessed and who's the one blessing? Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Zev will explain to you what that means. And he said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, El Elyon, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him one-tenth of everything. Now this is the only mention of Melchizedek in the Torah. What did you learn briefly? What's the core? What's the big idea? He's a priest of God Most High. And the fact that he both blesses Abraham and receives a tithe or a tenth from him and gives him the bread and the wine suggests what? What's his relationship to Melchizedek in terms of spiritual status? Who's under who? Abraham is, would be, con, you know, not in God's sense, you know, we're all equal, but in terms of spiritual reverence and relationship and where you are with God, Melchizedek is a priest. So, okay. So he meets, Abraham meets him, I would say, about 2080. No more mention of Melchizedek until we get to David. When did David live? <laughs> All right. All right, well, something like... <laughs> you're, you're in the zone. You're in the zone. About then... Uh, which would be what? Now we've moved, remember, we're going towards zero, so we moved from 2165 to about 1040. Just to make it simple for people, I'll, I'll just say one. We're going to use the figure 1000. We just jump forward how much in time? 
uh, over a thousand years, 1,100 years. Go back in time, 1,100 years, where are we in Western culture? Uh, sometimes called the Dark Ages. Uh, we're, we're back close to the first millennium. That's a long time. So now find Psalm 110, verse 4. And I'm going to put about 1,000 for when this was written. And what's it say? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in or after the, accord, uh, the order of Melchizedek. Well, now that's odd. We've gone a thousand years and we haven't had any mention of Melchizedek whatsoever. Ever. None. These are the only two references in the entire Jewish Bible to Melchizedek. Just two. So, where did this order of Melchizedek come from? Where is it? How, you know, where did, what does it mean? Just dropped in there. And it really becomes acutely interesting when you consider that between Abraham and David, there's another figure that is central to the Jewish uh, faith, Jewish life, and, and in fact, the whole Jewish Bible. And who would that be? Right in the center. Yes, Moses. And uh, when was he born? 1525, I think, died in 14, therefore, you are. Uh, therefore I am, 1405, I think he died, he was 120, um, and so you can see, subtract 80 from that, and you get what, 1445, that's when the Exodus took place, because that's how old he was when he started, the Exodus, so cool, so Moses starts, I think, the Exodus in 1445, if you disagree and you want to do 1300, it doesn't matter because you can see that the argument is still going to have its power and its punch because in that covenant, in the Torah covenant, you have this introduction after the laws, in, particularly in the book of Leviticus, that we're introduced to this thing called the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood, right? That's the beginning of the, of the Jewish priesthood. So when does that take place? In 1445. So Aaron is appointed high priest. His descendants, Levi, are the perpetuation of that priesthood. And that goes on in Jewish thought from 1445 for how long? At the time of Jesus, add 30 to 1445 B.C., you get what? 1475, rounded off, from Moses to Jesus is how many years? 1500. So when Jesus comes in 1500 years later, after Moses, what's still in operation? What's still in perpetuation? The Levitical priesthood, the temple is still standing. The sacrifices are still being offered. Jesus has many encounters with the priest, right? There's still a functioning, living reality. Huh. The only problem is, now we got two what? We got two priesthoods, which is weird. Because, and especially, why would God say long after the Aaronic priesthood was instituted? How many years after, by the way? I know it's Sunday morning, but it doesn't matter Sunday morning or any time, right? Okay, I'll do it for you. From 1000 to 1445 BC is what? 445 years. So the Levitical priesthood gets instituted. It runs for 400, let's round it off, runs for 450 years. 450 years? Go back 450 years in American history, and where are we? Nowhere. 
well, we'd be in North America, four, 450 years would be what? Uh, uh, 1600, something like that. Uh, it would be first little Puritans running around, maybe, uh, North American Indians. Wow, it's a long time. So 450 years after Moses, suddenly God says to somebody, to somebody, I have sworn and I will not change my mind. I am appointing you or you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, who's the you? And why would God talk about a second order, a second priesthood, a Melchizedekian priesthood, an order of Melchizedek, not Melchizedek himself, but the order of Melchizedek. Why would God bring this up 450 years after he did this big production with Levi and Aaron and no one else can be a priest, right? You have to be descended from the tribe of Levi to be a priest. You can't just join. It's a uh, genealogical thing. Well, is Melchizedek part of the Levitical priesthood? Why not? Because he he lived like way, 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 way before, right? So what's going on here? Interesting, right? So those are the two mentions of Melchizedek in the Bible, except when we get to who? Well, don't jump to Jesus first, but I understand why you want to do that. Who brings him up? Who's the third person to bring him up? Who's the third book that brings Melchizedek up in the Bible? Hebrews. And believe it or not, Melchizedek is the centerpiece, as it were, of the entire argument of the book of Hebrews. If this argument fails, if Apollos and Hebrews are wrong on this, then the whole argument falls into the ground to a certain extent. So that's how important this is to understand that. So now who wants to ask me some quick questions on this just to make sure we get it straight? Did you get all the chronology straight? Do you understand the the flow? I'm that good of a teacher. Yes. A what? Yes, that's the, yeah. Where does this guy come from? Because in the text, we're going along and they're telling the story of Abraham, right? Abraham, Abraham. Boom! From nowhere comes Melchizedek, and he shows up in this little snippet, and then what? Gone. Then the story of Abraham goes on. And the author of Hebrews makes a point of this. Uh, Zev will explain it to you in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. No father, no mother, no genealogy. Hold we don't, that thought. Yeah, hold that thought. We don't know where he came from. So he's like this mystery figure. But we do know one thing. He's identified as the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. He's identified as the king of righteousness. He's a righteous king in Jerusalem who's also what? He's not just the king. He's a priest. He's a priest of El Elyon. He's a priest of the true God. Oh, Man, I wish I could teach a whole course on just this. That means God had a priest back here that predated this, predated Moses, predated Abraham. That must mean what? If we think the God of the Bible was asleep on his throne for thousands and thousands of years waiting for the birth of Moses to jumpstart the redemptive plan, no, no, God's been working all along. Yes, Susan? Primordial. Primordial. Maybe a figure before time. Well, that, I think Zeb's going to explode that. But yes, we have a king of righteousness, a king of peace, who brings out bread and wine, blesses Abraham. We got some cosmic stuff going on here. Yes. My question is, I read it. Ah, Zeb will address that too. That's why I brought him on today, because he knows everything, and I just, 
<laughs> I set the thing up for the questions and then he answers. <laughs> Who is the you of where? Psalm 110. Yes. Who's the you? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek. He's not talking to Melchizedek. He's talking to somebody else who's in the order of Melchizedek. Just like the Levitical priests were in the order of Levi or orders that we have in all kinds of cultural manifestations too. The order of what? The Eastern Star. The order of the Eastern Star. You've got a structure. That's what this is, the Levitical structure. Now apparently God has a Melchizedekian structure. And that this you of Psalm 110 is the you that is in that order. But this one, the you that's being addressed, what does he say to that one? You are a priest forever in that order. Not in this order, but in this order. So who's the you? That's the question. And he'll tell you. <laughs> okay. Chronology questions. Got it? Yes, sir. I don't see them as incompatible two relationships. That Levi did exist until Abraham had the great grandson. That's correct. So if, if Abraham is called out for special treatment by God or a covenant, and before that happens, Melchizedek had to bless it, his seed is going to be blessed. Well, the well, the author of Hebrews makes that point, which is very weird for moderns, because he says, look, Levi was actually in Abraham's body, right? Because Levi was a descendant of Abraham. Now, you might think this is weird because we know modern science and we know that it takes a, you know, the, the two from the male and the female. But in their thought, what? The seed was where? In the male. I could tell you a funny story about homunculi sometime, but that's another point. The seed is in the male's body. So the author of Hebrews says, look, because Levi's seed was still in his body, when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, in effect, he was blessing who? All of the descendants that would flow from Abraham. So in other words, you wind up getting the fact that Melchizedek blessed Levi. Well, in the Bible, whoever blesses who is what? Greater, right? So I bless you. <laughs> come on, sir, come on. The, blood, the greater always blesses the, the lesser, right? Not that God really looks at things that way. We're talking about spiritual um, qualities, maturity, and stuff like that. So, uh, very good. You, that's the point he's making. Got it? You got the chronology? Okay. Now, Zev will tell you what it means. Okay. Have fun. Let's just say after such a setting of the table, let's hope that the main course is befitting it. What I basically, I don't have any PowerPoint today. We're basically going to be looking at the text, and I'm going to be basically relying on you to come up with the answers to the questions that you've asked. Um, so let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7. And if I could get someone to please read the first three verses of chapter 7 of Hebrews. Then king of righteousness, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. 
Okay. Now, okay. Um, so, what does the author to Hebrews tell us about Melchizedek? Okay. King of Salem. What? Priest of El. Is that Hebrews? Yeah. Okay. Priest forever, someone said. Okay. Without father or mother. What? Unknown age. Ah, what does his name mean? King of righteousness. King of peace, we, I think we, okay. No beginning or ending. Okay. You get the picture, though. There are some very strange things about Melchizedek. First of all, the name in Hebrew, Malchizedek. Malchizedek, which means king of righteousness or my king is righteous. Okay? King of Shalem in the Hebrew. Shalem is how that's the Hebrew equivalent of Salem. What is Shalem? Does that sound like something familiar? Another Hebrew word that you might know? What does it sound? Shalom. Exactly the same consonants, just different vowels. And the word shalem also means whole, finished, complete. Because that's a large part of the meaning of what it means to have shalom. And that is now. Now what I'd like to do is look at a passage in Psalm 76. If someone would like to read verses 1 through 2 of Psalm 76. And please wait for the microphone. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. Okay. How many of you have ever heard of the concept of Hebrew parallelism? Anybody know what I'm talking about in terms of Hebrew parallelism? That is a basic technique of Hebrew poetry in which you are saying the same thing in two parallel ways. Okay? So notice, his abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. It's basically parallel ways of saying the same thing common Hebrew structure. But what does that mean about Salem, about Shalem? What is or where is Salem? Zion. It is saying that Salem and Zion are the same place. Okay, and where was Zion? What was Zion? Jerusalem, exactly. And again, in Jerusalem, the name in Hebrew, Yerushalayim. Notice at the end, Shalayim, you've got the same basic root as Shalem and Shalom, Yerushalayim. Okay, so who was Melchizedek king of? What place? He was king of Jerusalem. Now, let me ask you something. <clears throat> Why do you think David chose Jerusalem as his, as his capital? Any ideas? God told him to, very possibly. Actually, you don't really see much guidance from God on this point. Maybe because it was already a sanctuary to the same God as the God of Israel. Okay, 
If you look back, by the way, I'm not going to go into this in depth, but it is kind of interesting. David was at once an intuitive religious genius and a poet, as well as being a very astute politician. Who did David succeed as king of Israel? Saul. What tribe was Saul from? Anybody know? Come on, speak up. Benjamin. Did someone say Benjamin? Yes. From the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, what tribe was David from? Judah. Okay, Benjamin was one of the northern tribes, believe it or not. Judah was a southern tribe. Where was Jerusalem located? In the middle of Benjamite territory. Oh, that's interesting. And yet, was it a Benjamite city? It had not been conquered. It was a Jebusite city. So here was this piece of land, a Jebusite city, apparently an ancient shrine of God Most High in the middle of Benjamite territory so he could placate the Benjamites who were sore over Saul being replaced by putting the capital right in the middle of their territory, but none of the other tribes would be jealous. Why? Because it hadn't really been Benjamite territory. That's political astuteness. That's real political astuteness. And then he caps it off by bringing the Ark of the Covenant there and establishing it not merely as his political capital, but as the religious capital. Okay? Now, I happen to think what we are learning from this passage is that there may have been a reason why the Israelites didn't bother to conquer Jerusalem when they entered the Promised Land. Because they recognized that Shalem, Yerushalayim, was already dedicated to the God of Israel. Interesting thought, isn't it? Okay. Now, he is called a priest of God Most High. Now, there's very interesting things about that, about Melchizedek being called a priest of God Most High. All right? One of the things that I find interesting about this, how many times before Genesis 14 and the mention of Melchizedek do you find the term priest, Kohen, used? Anybody have a guess? None. Exactly. Melchizedek, Melchizedek is the first person in the Hebrew Bible to be called a priest. He is the archetypal priest, if you will. He's the first person to be called a priest. What's also interesting is he is a priest to whom? God Most High, El Elyon. That isn't found in very many other places. One of the things that really strikes you, it's kind of hard to get a sense of this unless you actually read it in Hebrew, if you know Hebrew, because when you encounter this passage, the whole 14th chapter of Genesis, the thing that strikes you is, boy, this sounds strange, because the language is different from everything around it. It has its own unique style. Plus, it is something that doesn't really move the overall narrative of the Abraham story forward all that much. You could cut it out, and you really wouldn't think that you were missing anything. It just sort of seems dropped down in here. It sort of seems dropped down in here. 
and the phrase El Elyon, God Most High, is also pretty rare. However, there are some interesting places to look it up. Okay, so if you look at Psalm 78, so you don't have far to go from Psalm 76. And in particular, I'd like you to look at Psalm 78, verses 32 to 35. Okay, would someone like to read that? Psalm 78, verses 32 to 35. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. Bingo! You see that? The Most High God, their Redeemer. And now skip down to verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. Okay. So who is El Elyon? The Most High God? Who is, who, but who is that? What God is that? It's the God of Israel, isn't it? Okay. So the God who is the God of Israel is El Elyon. And here we have Malkitzedek as a priest to that very God, God Most High, the one God of Israel. In other words, when a devout Jew says, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the only Lord, who is he talking about? El Elyon. It's the same deity. Okay. Now, let's go to Genesis, to Genesis 14 and this wonderful story. And I'd like us again to reread. I'm going to be covering some of the same material as John is, but in a different, from a different angle. Someone read to us Genesis 14, verses 17 to 20. After he turned peace and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him one-tenth of everything. Okay, first of all, please note, how is Abraham called here? Abram. So this is before what? It's before the covenant. Because when did Abram get the name Abraham? Which chapter of Genesis do you find that in? Genesis 17. Abraham was 99 years old, and guess what he had to do? He had to circumcise himself. Anybody here up for that? Okay, aren't you glad we don't have to do that anymore? Okay, but even before that, what happens right after this incident with Melchizedek in chapter 15? Just take a quick look at it. 
don't need to read it out loud, what's going on in chapter 15? We have two very key things happening. The Abrahamic covenant between the pieces. And before that, there is an extremely important passage. Look at 15.6. What does it say there? And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. How many people know how important that passage is for Christianity? That's the whole thing that Paul develops the letter to the Romans about. Right there. Okay? Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Yeah? Uh, Isn't there some significance there that uh, the interaction between Abram and and in terms of what he's saying, I'm going to give you this, I'll take this, and Abraham, it would seem to me if he is, quote, considered under him, uh, saying, no, I'm not going to take it because uh, I'm not going to have it saying, okay. you made me rich. Uh, that seemed like a pretty important Who's stuff. he interacting with at that point? Because... No, he's interacting with the king of Sodom. Well... Not the king of Salem, the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom went out to meet him. Right. Because if you go back and read from the beginning what had happened, this whole group of kings under Kedarla Omer, just to put you out of your misery so you don't have to read it again, went and made war on another alliance of kings, including the king of Sodom and took the people of their kingdom hostage, prisoner, made off with the spoils. So why did the king of Sodom come out to meet Abram? Because he just liberated all these people. He defeated Kedarla Omer because who else was captured along with all the other people of Sodom? Abram's nephew Lot. In other words, Sodom was still in existence at this time. And it was when the king of Sodom came out to meet Abram, that's when Melchizedek, the king of Salem, came down to bless Abram. And Abram gave him a tithe of everything. That was before any of the discussion with the king of Sodom. In other words, when did, what did Abram give a tithe of? Not net, but gross. He gave it off the top line, not the bottom line. Out of revenues and not out of profit. Okay? Now, okay. Now, John has already told you that this passage, apart from Psalm 110, is the only place where Melchizedek um, is mentioned in the entire Hebrew Bible. It is certainly the only time he's mentioned in the book of Genesis. How many people have started into Genesis and uh, just started to read from the front? What do you very quickly encounter if you go for too very long? The really exciting parts of Genesis, the ones you just kind of want to maybe skip over. Genealogies. You've got loads of genealogies. You've got loads of begets and begottens, and you've got all of this whole thing, and -and so-and-so lived so many years and begat such-and-such, and other sons and daughters, and then lived for so many years and then died. You can go through the whole book of Genesis up until that point. You won't find Melchizedek mentioned at all. So what does that leave him without? Leaves him without birth, 
leaves him without death. No genealogy. We don't know where this guy came from. It's really bizarre, okay? Because what you're really dealing with when you look through the whole, of, especially the book of Genesis and on into Exodus, genealogy, lineage, who was descended from whom, who belongs to which tribe, what are the lines of descent, and here out of nowhere comes this character with no genealogy, how are people often introduced? So-and-so, the son of, it's just Malchizedek. We don't know who his father and mother are. It doesn't say Malchizedek ben so-and-so. All right, what does that suggest about Malchizedek? It doesn't necessarily suggest that he was not a human being or that he was more than a human being, but it does suggest that what is saying here is this is what we know in the understanding of the biblical world, certainly that Apollos came from as a type, okay? It is saying this is symbolic. It's saying look deeper, there's a saying in rabbinic tradition that this is the kind of passage that would say, Daughter Shani, interpret me. It's screaming out for interpretation. Okay? It's just such a, that's one of the things about it. That's, and, and the letter to the Hebrews notes this. Okay? So keep that in mind. This is part of, you know, what the Hebrews is talking about that is so critical to understand who Malkitzedek is. In other words... While there is no debate or question, yeah. Okay, a type is something that is sort of like an analogy for something, a metaphor for something. And it doesn't mean that that individual, that reality didn't exist or isn't a real human being. But what it's saying is there are some similarities between this person and that person. And those are significant similarities, okay? Because what you're saying is Malchitzedek, his importance to the story does not lie in his human origins. His importance to the story lies in what? The fact that he was priest of the Most High God, king of righteousness, king of peace, and he is coming to bless Abram, the father of the Hebrews, the father of the chosen people, and to receive a tithe. So what that is saying is, watch this, watch this. This is like a sign pointing beyond itself, okay? Yeah. Exactly, thank you. Okay, there are some people who want to say that's exactly who Melchizedek was. The only problem is, what are you saying? It's a pre-incarnate incarnation of Jesus? That doesn't make much sense. Okay. I, it doesn't, isn't necessary for him to be a manifestation of Jesus to be exactly the point you're talking about. All right. These are titles that Jesus assumes. King of righteousness. King of peace. Okay. A priest forever. Our eternal high priest. That's the point. These are things in which Melchizedek, as it were, points beyond himself. Did Melchizedek know Jesus? If he were Jesus, yes. But if he were not Jesus, no. But the important point is, you look at 
what he represents in the story. You see, remember what John says, the difference between chronos and kairos. Chronos is times, dates, names, all that stuff. Kairos is significance. And the significance of Malchizedek is saying, this is pointing way beyond itself. It's like he drops from heaven in a glad bag, does his thing, and then disappears again. Okay, you want to believe? That's fine. No, because when was the covenant with Abraham given? No, 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 Leslie, come on. Unpack this. Ah, that is he a sign for the Jews that it signifies God's power. Again, where are the Jewish people at this point? In Abraham's loins. Okay, who is Israel? What is the name? Who gets the name of Israel? Jacob, who is Abram's grandson. So do you have the Israelites present? Yeah, they do, sort of, in Abram's loins. So what does that mean about Melchizedek? Is he an Israelite? No. To put it bluntly, he's a goy. He's a Gentile. Oh, wait a minute. Do you mean that this Gentile is a priest of God Most High, a king of righteousness, a king of peace, and that the same God who is the God of Israel is the God whom this Gentile is serving? What does that say about God? Is God the God of the Jews only? Or is also he the God of the Gentiles also? Again, this is all part of this significance. Thank you, Leslie. You're, you know, that's good. Thank you for those questions, because, you know, this is all part of the significance. And what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, what Apollos is doing, is he's hammering home on this and saying, look at this passage. Look at this passage. It is full of meaning, and it's pointing beyond itself. Now let me tell you what it's all about, he's saying in his letter. Now, as for the superiority of Malchizedek to the Aharonic or Levitical priesthood... I've mentioned that Abram's encounter with Melchizedek is prior to the covenant between the pieces, prior to the name change in the covenant of circumcision. So now read Hebrews 7, 4 through 10. See how great he is. Abraham the patriarch gave him a tithe of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brethren, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who has not their genealogy, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Here tithes are received by mortal men. There, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Okay. So you have Melchizedek received tithes from Abram. By transfer, Levi pays tithes to Melchizedek through Abram. And Melchizedek blessed Abram. Okay, so who really has the status of the superior in, if you will, the hierarchy? It's Melchizedek who's superior to Abraham. Now, 
by transference, if Melchizedek is Abram's superior, what's his relationship to Levi? Superior. What's his relationship to Aaron? Whose priesthood is better? Melchizedek. Okay. Okay. Okay, Abram, repeat that again. I, I didn't quite catch it. Perfect. Mm-hmm. He had to recognize superior. Melchizedek. Because he didn't have to give tithes. The law wasn't given. The law was not given, so he did not have to give tithes. So he had to have recognized Melchizedek as his superior and offered tithes voluntarily. You hit the nail on the head on that one. You absolutely hit the nail on the head on that one. Okay. The Levites received tithes as a matter of law, okay? Melchizedek received tithes on what basis? Gratitude. What had Melchizedek done for Abram up to that point? Not nothing, really. Why was God, Abram doing this? Because he recognized that Melchizedek was a priest of God most high. In other words, it's a matter of faith. When did the law come in? Much later, because that's when you get Moses dumped into the middle of all this. Okay, so it precedes Moses. Now, I want you to look at Psalm 110, and I think we're going to have to end on this note, because we are running out of time. Yeah. Uh, I've got a clock there. That's why I can say, you know, it used to be said, you know, I realize you're dealing with a former preacher here. You know what it means when a preacher takes off his watch and sets it on the pulpit? (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Yes. Okay. Would someone please read the first four verses of Psalm 110? The Lord says to my... Start earlier. Start with the superscription. I'm sorry. Psalm David... A psalm, a psalm of David. David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves willingly on the day you lead your forces on the holy mountain. From the womb of the morning, like dew, your youth will come to you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Very good. Okay. First of all, the reason I asked you to read the superscription, what does the superscription say about this passage? Beg your pardon? David wrote it. Okay. So this is a psalm of David. And then what's the first line? The Lord, Hashem, said to my Lord... Who is David's Lord? But the Lord said to my Lord. Now, what? Okay. All right. All right. Here there's a big difference whether you're reading in Hebrew or Greek. Okay? Because if you're reading in Hebrew, most of you probably have in your Bibles, the first Lord is all in caps, isn't it? So that's the yud heh vav heh the second Lord is not all in caps. That's Adonai. yud heh vav heh that's the sacred four-letter name for God that you're never supposed to pronounce. Okay? So who is El Elyon? All right. Yahweh, name of God, the sacred name of God. That's what he says to my Lord. This is usually the way that you read 
Okay? Yahweh says to Adonai, so what's that mean? Just remind me to keep your di- my distance from you in the next thunderstorm. <laughs> okay. All right. So there is that distinction. However, there is, you know, Yud Kevavke says to Adoni, Adonai, and that's the Psalm of David. So who is the Adonai there? If this is a Psalm of David, who's the Adonai? Ah, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about in the dispute in the temple. How can you say that the Messiah is David's son? when David calls him Lord, okay? He's just reading that the way it is. A psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, okay? The Lord said to my Lord. Now, what's interesting, in Greek, the word for the Lord and my Lord is the same Greek word, kurios. That makes it even more confusing, I know. Sit at my right hand until I... So, in other words, now... Then to whom is the promise made? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Whom does that apply to? The one whom David calls Lord. He didn't know him as Jesus. But what we are talking about now, here's something that's very interesting. So who gets, as it were, anointed a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In this psalm, the anointed one, the Messiah. Oh! In other words, we now have a change of priesthood in Israel because a descendant of David is being anointed as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Please understand, this is, this is the way in which... The author of the Hebrews is reading this. Now, what's important about the fact that we have this psalm here, Psalm 110? When does this occur? Okay, which is after the institution of which priesthood? Levitical priesthood. So what are we doing here? After the Levitical priesthood has been instituted, what are we doing? We are now reestablishing, if you will, the priesthood of Melchizedek, which predated the priesthood of Levi, and now it is an eternal priesthood. Okay? You've got a change of priesthood now. Do you begin to see how this is so important for the letter to the Hebrews? Because where did the Levitical priesthood do its thing? Where was the place? Where? In the temple. Where does a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek do his priestly thing? Ah! In the heavenlies. Where what is found? What place in particular? What? The eternal eternal city, but what in particular? The The eternal tabernacle. Exactly. The one that was the pattern after which Moses built the tabernacle in the wilderness. Oh, do you begin to see now why this is so critical to what Hebrews is doing? He's saying what Jesus has done is... Fulfill this and inaugurate a new order of priesthood that is superior to the Levitical because Jesus serves in the heavenly tabernacle with an eternal priesthood that supersedes that of 
Aaron and Levi. Wow. So uh, look at uh, Matthew 22. I'm just going to give you the reference. It's 41 through 45, and I'm going to explain it to you really quickly. Read that this week. Go back and read Hebrews again this week, and then we will pick it up again next week and go forward. Because as we've discovered, Melchizedek is a, a challenging topic, right? You agree? So we need to take a little bit more time on this. But listen, in Jesus' day, the, the, the teachers of the law came to him, Matthew 22, 41 through 45, and they said, hey, who's... Uh, uh, son is the, uh, or where did the Messiah come from? Whose son is he? And uh, because they wanted to answer, they wanted him to say David. So Jesus said, well, wait a second. Did you guys ever read Psalm 110 verse 1 where it says, forgive me, Yahweh says to Adoni, Yahweh said to my Lord, right? And the master says to them, look, if David calls, and everyone understood the Adoni to be who? Who's the my Lord? got to be the Messiah. The David's calling somebody the Lord. It's got to be the Messiah. So they understood that to be the Messiah. Yahweh says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your footstools, enemies a footstool. And Jesus asked them a question. Well, if David, King David, calls the Messiah Lord, then why are you putting all the emphasis on what? David being the father of the Messiah. Jesus flipped it full circle and said, don't you understand that the Messiah existed before David did? Don't you understand that David called the Messiah Lord? Do you see that? And so read that passage carefully. Go back and read Hebrews again, and next week we'll pick it up. One final question. Uh, well, the thing is, you see how hard this is? You've got to know Jewish history. You've got to know Jewish thought. You've got to be into the thing. In fact, you've got to almost be what? You've got to almost be Jewish to really get this. So with the Gentiles, Paul made it easy and said, ah, I'm not going to talk to you about all this because you're not going to get it anyways. I'll break it down for you another way. But now this is a mature class for scholars, so. Okay? All right, bye-bye.